Aloha, and welcome back to Season 3 of The Aravinda Show, hosted by me, Andrew Crusoe. For today's episode, I got to have a remarkable conversation with John Roderick, a musician, podcaster, and so much more. I've been following John's band, The Long Winters, as well as his podcasts for almost a decade now. He's also tied for first place as my favorite podcaster, so it was an honor to have the chance to interview him. Our conversation goes to some unexpected places. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> What's in the show is in the show, oh, right? <laughs> that's right. Just leave it in. It starts when it starts. Starts when it starts. I learned that from you. Uh, thanks for being on my show, John. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Tell me about your show. Tell me a little bit about what uh, what your show is about. Well, that's a very good question. Um, the show is called Aravinda Show. I might rename it. Aravinda is uh, the Sanskrit word for lotus. And it's a metaphor. So the lotus, you know, when it's growing, it pushes its way through the mud and it gets up to the surface of the, the lake or the pond or whatever and blooms. And I think that's a metaphor for life. So it's a show about growth and personal evolution and change and doing work that's meaningful to us. And it just it's it's also an excuse to talk to people whose work I really admire, to be honest. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, I, yeah, I feel like I'm definitely uh, always trying to push up through the mud. So <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't know, this is kind of an un, kind of a different kind of intro that I usually done. But John Roderick is a musician and a podcaster <laughs> and so many things. Mm -hmm. The long everybody should Go check on. out the long winters. <laughs> he was in Harvey Danger for a little while, and he's way up there in Seattle. And uh, you, you spent most of your life in in Ala well, your childhood in Alaska, and then came down to Seattle. How old were you when you came down to Seattle? I try to put the timeline together, but I sometimes I get it mixed up. And you were in Colorado for a hot second. Just for a little bit, yeah. I've, although I've probably spent more time in Hawaii than Colorado over the years. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I was born in Seattle, and then because my parents uh, got divorced when I was about three, I split my time. My dad stayed in Alaska, my mom stayed in Seattle, so I went back and forth uh, for a lot of my childhood. And then starting the summer after fourth grade, everyone moved back to Alaska. And then after I left Alaska... When I graduated from high school, I bounced around for a while, but settled in Seattle again as a grown-up person in uh -huh. uh, toward the end of 1990. So I was 20, 21 years old, and I've lived in I've lived in Seattle for the most part ever since. Wow. So yeah, over over the course of my life, a lot more time in Seattle than in Anchorage, but um, but formative years in Alaska. Yeah, you speak about them a lot in the show. For people who don't know, everybody should go check out, uh, really, and don't like, it's between you and me, Roderick on the Line is my favorite podcast in the world. Hmm. I, that show has just deepened, and I don't even know how to describe it. It's To me, it's like, it's a, it's two guys, it's you and Merlin Mann, 
whom I've, I've got to meet Merlin in person a few times. He's, he's, he's amazing. And I'm hoping to meet you in person at some point. But you guys both share stories of your life. And, but it's really, I think it's really a show about, I don't know if it sounds strange for me to say, I think it's a show about philosophy. It's kind of disguised as a, as a funny show. But you guys talk about some pretty deep stuff on there pretty often. How is it possible that you have met Merlin Mann, the most, the, the you know, notoriously <laughs> an impossible person to meet? But you uh, haven't met me, a, I know. A, a relatively easy person to meet. I know. It's crazy. Really, it's life. It's life. I basically, life mm-hmm. let it flow together. I was, I was living, for a hot minute, I was living in, like, near Sacramento. I was born in East Bay. Uh, I was born in California. Uh, oh, God, that's a long story. But, but basically, he was doing uh, the three-ring binder with Scott, Scott Simpson, who I'd love to have on the show. Right. Scott's hilarious. And uh, right. I went and I saw Three Ring Binder, and they were hilarious. That was that was actually the second time I met Merlin. Merlin actually came to so we. I, I really identified with you jumping back and forth between Alaska because I basically did that with California. I was I bounced back and forth between California and Wisconsin. Most of my formative years were in Wisconsin. Why? It why? <laughs> why Wisconsin? Yeah, I don't know. Ask my father. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he bounced back and forth. I, I, I know I have, I have good parents, but I felt like I, I was kind of nomadic for a while. So, but so Merlin did a talk for the Distinguished Lecture Series in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a good school, and that was the first time I met him. That was a, a thousand years ago in 2010, and nice. he hung out at this place called the Rathskeller, I think it's called. It's kind of like pub thing in UW, and we were just drinking beers. It was like six of us, and I was like. Oh, you know, and, and that was back when 43 folders kind of existed, and um, he, he updated it, which 43folders.com is Merlin's very interesting productivity site, good website. Um, but I was like, I, I already kind of knew Merlin. I felt like, you know, you, when you listen to somebody's podcast, you feel like you you know a, a, a you know, percentage of the way their mind works, at least. And yep. it was such a delight. Yeah. So then, and then I met him one more time uh, in 2015. He did a meetup at Two Cats Comics, which sadly no longer exists. And uh, and I got a photo with him, and it was, he was very, very nice. Yeah. But I was going to meet, I don't know if you remember, you get a thousand tweets a day, I'm sure, but we were going to have lunch at one point, like a couple years ago, and then I had to change my flight. Oh, I changed my flight because the lava was flowing here, and I had to go through SFO instead of SeaTac. Oh, right. You live on the big island. Yes, sir. Where the lava flows. Was flowing. Right. So you are, you're a, you're an OG Merlin Mann uh, uh, fan. You go way back with him. So I'm, I'm an, uh, how, how far back do I have to go to be an OG fan with you? Probably eighties. Uh, no, no, but I, but I think people that claim to be OG fans of me have to go back to 2001. Right. Because they're, they're going to be talking about the music, uh, and, you know, 2001 is before the internet really existed. So no, no, it was Napster. Um, I she see, I screwed up. I was I was on Napster. Did you you probably use Napster too? I'm guessing. I uh, I did not. I did not. Not you, my you, thing. You missed it. Oh, yeah. There was. A, yeah. Well, you know, I, I I'm not like a super consumer of music, so Napster just seemed like it was designed for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I, you know, I had a record label. If I and I was writing a column at the time, so if I wanted a record. They would just send it to me. I didn't have to steal it. That's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do full disclosure. I'm looking up when I added some Long Winter's music to my uh, library. And it looks like 
Uh, not too long. It's a while ago, 2012. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's early on, early on yeah. in the in the Roderick on the Line canon, right? 2012. Yeah, exactly. And I was listening to that since episode one. And once again, Roderick on the Line will be in the show notes. Absolute favorite. <laughs> no, no. I, I look forward to that every Monday. And you just recorded that, uh, what, like an hour ago? Yep, we did. We just uh, we just got off the phone, and I'm doing a little. I'm doing some internet-based work today because since we're since we're coronavirus um, yep. or COVID nineteen mm. sequestered, mm. a lot of a lot of fellow musicians have been doing uh, uh, online concerts. You know, playing from their basements. Yeah, I have. I've kind of resisted it thus far, but I uh, I was asked. By Adam Savage, if I would do a song for a thing that the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is doing this Thursday, really, uh, and it's some kind of live on YouTube uh-huh. concert featuring uh-huh. half a dozen or a dozen artists, and so I recorded a thing yesterday for it, but my sister got involved, Susan. Uh, Susan uh, uh, videotaped it, yeah. and so now Susan is doing an edit of it, and so I'm I'm like uh, herding cats here, <laughs> in, acting as an intermediary between my sister and the Smithsonian Institution. And let me tell you, if you're going to be <laughs> caught between a rock and a hard place, that's that's it. Oh my God! Between Susan Roderick and and the Air and Space Museum. Well. I'm sure it's going to turn out great. Your sister's so talented. I follow her on Instagram. She shoots wonderful stuff, and she's just she's got a lot of energy. I, I really I like her vibe. <laughs> yeah, she's she's interesting for sure. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So I yeah I'm here I'm here on Big Island actually. And when you came, I think you first started really talking about Aloha last year when you were in Maui for like a month visiting your uncle, yeah. I believe, and it became part of your shows. It did. Aloha. I, you know, like every time you, you sort of like come into a philosophy of being from the outside and don't really understand it, didn't grow up in it, don't really know what it is, but decide that you're going to, for instance, start doing yoga from your, you know, from your townhouse or whatever, you're only going to get a very incomplete and, and half-assed sense of what it really is. Um, but I, I adopted I uh, what, what what is the word I'm looking for? I co-opted Aloha. <laughs> you co-opted the thought because, technology of Aloha. Yeah, because the, you know <laughs> Aloha is not 100. percent Aloha isn't like 100 percent positive even, or 100 percent generous, right? There's an aspect of Aloha, at least in modern Hawaii, that has I don't know just a tinge of like, look, man, it's going to happen when it happens. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Like ha- Hawaiian time is is wonderful, but it's also a little bit. It can be a little bit aggressively casual. Yes, um, well said. Actually, and <laughs> in trying to in trying to navigate, like I, you know, my own, I was having some anxiety issues at the time, and my mm-hmm. life was just felt like it was coming unraveled. I was stuck in Hawaii, which is not the worst thing. That but terrible, as you John. know, you can get stuck in Hawaii, right? And not everybody in Hawaii is like living in paradise. Yeah, definitely. It's an energy vortex. And, it's hard to have an escape velocity sometimes. Yeah, right. And, and but also, 
you know, you can fight Hawaii, but you're <laughs> but you're swimming upstream, right? Like Hawaii doesn't care. Hawaii's not going to. <laughs> You, you can't fight. I mean, you can try and fight San Francisco and kind of succeed, right? You can fight your way upstream. Every day can be a struggle. <laughs> We're going to make it to the mission. <laughs> yeah, right. But if you do that in if you do that in Hawaii, you know, Hawaii's just going to if you stop moving for a second, the vines are going to just grow over you and yeah. and you'll disappear. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I worked at it the whole time I was there and I found that Hawaii itself and the you know, the ocean and that, that, and the culture there, and even some aspects of the culture that are like, if you fight it, it can get hostile. Yeah. Uh, all of that really helped me work out to some degree, like what was important. Hmm. And I, I needed to put some stuff that wasn't important by the wayside because, you know, fighting was not, uh, was not per- I'm not producing good results. Mm, it's like it teaches you to... Yeah, I called you know. it Aloha. And I mean, just yesterday, my daughter came in and she was crying. She was in a conflict with a little girl across the street. There was, you know, there was an issue about the little girl across the street didn't want to do what my daughter wanted to do. Mm. And there wasn't a resolution. They They got into a big fight about it. And... My daughter has learned to snorkel the last few times we've mm-hmm. gone to Maui. And I said, do you remember when you're, when you're watching a turtle and the turtle is eating little bits of green off of the, off of the rock? And here's the big rock wall, the, you know, the kind of undersea lava scape. Mm-hmm. And these, these turtles are big, you know, some of them are, are they feel like they're as big as we are they're certainly as big as she is they're pretty intimidating when you find yourself snorkeling and you're like oh there's a five foot long creature just kind of flying next to me yeah you don't know what it's gonna do yeah (laughs) i mean if that if that beak was on a bird you would be yeah you'd be well to be scared Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i said remember how the turtle when the turtle goes over to eat the rocks and the and the wave comes in it just moves the turtle and the turtle moves with the wave. And then when the wave goes out, the turtle moves out with the wave. And she was like, yeah. I said, well, what the mm-hmm. turtle is doing is going with the flow. Mm-hmm. She was like, right. And I said, the turtle's going with the flow, right? If the turtle decided it really wanted to eat a little patch of lichen mm-hmm. and it was going to fight that wave, and it was going to paddle real hard so it could stay right on that lichen. And then the wave would come in and then it would have to paddle real hard the other way as the wave went out mm-hmm. just to eat that one little lichen. Yeah. But what the turtle does is it go, the wave pushes it in, the wave pushes it out. The turtle never fixates on a single piece of lichen. It mm. just figures it's going to catch it as it goes by. <laughs> There's always another piece of lichen. I said, that's go with the flow. And that's aloha. And mm. my daughter was just rolling her eyes at me at this point because <laughs> I was because I was moving up and down the hall like a turtle being moved by the waves, and I was <gasps> eating lichen off of the wall as I went by. You were doing an actual and like she, demonstration. I was, and she was like, "Oh, you are so awful." <laughs> and I was like, "But this is Aww. 
if you're out playing with your friend and your friend doesn't want to play your game and you, and you like, and you insist and you're paddling so hard to make this game happen, just go with the flow. You'll get back to that game. Maybe you'll never get back to it. Who cares? Like ride the waves in and out. It's like, ugh, <laughs> I hate you, dad. But you know, hopefully if I, if I aloha her over and over, it'll sink in. John, you just um, accidentally made a perfect link to the first episode of this season. And I think there's a theme to this show that I didn't realize. (laughs) There it is. You never do until it's just like writing a song. You never know what they're about until you figure out what they're about. Oh, I got a question about a song, too, in a minute. But no, I just realized one of the hidden themes of this show is... Really balancing out the, I'm going to sound kind of woo Easter first Eastern for a second, but the balancing like the yin and the yang, right? So uh, I don't know if you know who Jamie Cato is, but he co-founded this world band, One Giant Leap, and mm-hmm. and he's he's excellent. And he was talking about how so often we're trained to go out and make the thing happen, right? Going to in you know create, form, focus, and he tries to focus on taking a step back and doing the, the yin listening and allowing space for things to happen instead of trying to make them happen. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing is the same thing. So it's just a funny total accident that the same theme popped through in two different years, two different interviews. <laughs> it's, it's an underlying theme apparently of that yin yeah, well, coming through. It's so hard to, uh, it's even, even though I am not a particularly, um, ambitious agro, like type a get things done person. Mm I am, a I am ambitious, you know, there, there, I do have ambition. I I want to do things, accomplish things. Mm Uh, and I, and I think I, I think I feel that I am more relaxed than I am because I, because I do kind of, I I am able to go with the flow, but there is a part of me that's really holding on to a, uh, a plan, Uh, not a plan, but like, um, like an ideal. I, 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 yeah, an ideal, right. there, There are a lot of ways I guess to describe it, but, but what I'm not doing is truly, um, going with the flow mm. and, uh, and I'm not Yang <laughs> as much as I think I am. Uh, and that, I, that can, I think that is the source of a lot of problems. When you imagine that you are Yang, I'm using that correctly, right? Not, yeah. not Yin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yang is like the, I'm an, it's, they call it like the masculine principle, you know, the, the making the thing happen, fixing the thing. Oh, that's Yang. And the, yeah, that's Yang. That's Yang. Yeah, yeah. And the Yin is like listening and allowing right. and creating space and, and the spaciousness and the... So I had that backwards. Okay. I, I, I meant that backwards. I, I imagine I'm more Yin than I am. Yeah. And actually... And I think this happens a lot among men my age in my culture. Mm-hmm. If you if you ask us, we're going to say, "Oh, we're totally yin, man." But there's a lot of yang that's being masked. Oh uh, God, yeah. By surface yin. Sir, hashtag surface yin. Wow. So 
there's something I got to ask out of the blue for people because some of the people are just going to listen to this episode because they love you. And that's, I, I mean, we all do that with interview shows. But one of the phrases that you said in Roderick on the line is, I love it when you do your dad's voice. I got I to gotta say this before I forget. The way you do your dad's mm-hmm. voice makes me crack up every time. And the for me, the... The beginning of that was when you were talking about he he would tell you to go practice the car. <laughs> and was I'm, that the first time I ever used his voice? I don't. I kind of doubt it, but it's the first time that I remember it sticking in my head. And 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 that was when you were were you in Alaska and he 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 wanted you to practice. Then you would take the car and you would take it out onto the into the airport land, like runway strips, right, and do donuts. Right. Am I right. am I remembering that right? Yep. I'm just <laughs> I'm just curious. How many times did he tell you to go practice the car? I, I always was curious about that story and how often that would happen. Is that a silly well, question? Well, you know, there's a no, not at all. There's that period between age fourteen when you uh if you're living in a rural place, um, at age fourteen, it starts to be somewhat I don't know, plausible that you could start trying to get your learner's permit. Yeah. Like the first time I was ever really taught to drive a car, uh, it was the summer, uh, what was it? The summer before my freshman year in high school when I was working at the gold mine up at uh, Circle Hot Springs. Hmm. And the guy that owned the mine, you know, it's like, it's basically an uncontrolled airspace up there, right? I mean, it's all gravel uh, you're you're a long, long way off of any kind of highway. It's a closed system, right? There's it's not like there's a road really that's going anywhere from there. Right, right. And so he uh he had an old, you know, Ford F two fifty and he put me in the driver's seat. And the first lesson he gave me, and I have no idea why he I mean, I guess this is the type of thing I would do, he was like I'm going to teach you to drive in reverse first. So put it in reverse and using only your mirrors, I want you to drive around and learn to learn to turn by using your mirrors only. And so, you know, every once in a while he would take me out in his truck and we would drive around backwards. That's so smart. Uh, and I would just check the rear view mirrors. Right. And mm-hmm. and so learn to kind of control a vehicle that way. Mm-hmm. And I think he was doing it because he wanted to have one more person working at the mine that he could send to get supplies, right? If he could get me in the truck and say, like, run to town and and whatever, get, you know, five more gold pans. I don't know what they, what he would have sent me on an errand <laughs> to do because he never did. You know, we, I never got to the point where he trusted me to drive the truck. But by the time I was 14... Uh, I think, you know, my dad had started to teach me to drive, but it was really, I think I was probably 15. Mm-hmm. My birthday's in September. Mm-hmm. Me too. I got my learner's permit sometime when I was 15. So it would have been, would have been early on. Oh, well, it would have been the winter. My birthday's in September. It would have been the winter prior. So starting in December of, of that year of my 15th year. Mm-hmm. He would have started to throw me the keys and say, because he taught me how to use a clutch or whatever. And then he said, all right, yep. you know, I don't want to have to go drive around with you while you 
stall the car at every stop sign. <laughs> so, you know, go, go practice the car. Now he didn't mean go down and do donuts at the airport. Yeah, of course. He, he, <laughs> he meant go drive around at five miles an hour and, and stop at every stop sign and <laughs> go drive around. <laughs> yeah. You know, like practice your practice the car. It was one rule though, uh, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just had to keep it under whatever. I forget what it was. Keep it under 20 miles an hour. Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> I don't know why but, that's stuck uh, in my head. <laughs> it didn't take me long to to know, well, to teach myself how to drive. And then once you do, you want to, you know, push your limits, want to see how, oh, see yeah. what the car can take. Oh, yeah. You and know? you're 15, you got a car and there's ice? Do it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Do it. Yeah. Blow, blow it out. <laughs> but I had a, I mean, my first vehicle that I bought for myself was a, was a Vespa. And I got that a long time before I was 15, or I'm sorry, a long time before I was 16. Yeah. So I must have bought that Vespa, well, I probably bought it in May of that year. So I'd already been driving the car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in Anchorage, you could get a, I think you could drive a motorcycle, you could get a motorcycle driver's license before a car driver's license. Yeah, that makes sense. It was it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And what's it like going back to Anchorage now? Like, is what's it Where, like? Uh, when did you arrive at, at the Big Island? How old were you? When did I arrive at the Big Island? Well, I don't age, so I look younger than I am. But I think I was 26, 25 or 26 when I first came here. And I've been off and on here for seven years. So I guess you do the math. But not... Not so long. I mean, you've seen changes come to the Big Island, I'm sure, in that time. But it would be a lot different if you had if you'd grown up there and and were coming back 30 years later oh, or something like God, that. Oh God, yes. Oh God, yes. I can't yeah. imagine. I mean, people tell me stories about what Hawaii was like before the internet, and they said this place was like. I mean, I love I love the culture here. I love the people, but with, because of the isolation of this place, it was like in the 50s. Like so many of the the cultural assumptions and the way people were living was in a, of a different time. Cause it's the, my yeah. friend calls it the belly button of the world. It's in the most isolated population center. Literally the most isolated place is Antarctica, but the most isolated population center are these islands. So, um, yeah. I can't imagine leaving for 30 years and coming back and being like, Whoa, broadband is and and, and they have got the saddle road now. You can drive from Hilo to Kona in an hour and a half. That's crazy. That's sacred. You're not supposed to drive between the mountains. That's sacred land. Nobody cares anymore. When did they put that highway in? I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Uh, hmm. I think they finally got it pretty good in 2013, 2014, 2015, around there. Huh. Oh, yeah. Huh. You save a heck I mean, of I, I've. A lot of time. I've driven that road, and I think I did it probably in 2013, or or not not that long after. So I didn't realize it was a new. I didn't realize it was a new thing. How many lanes was it? Toward toward the end. Oh, it was just a two lane road. It gets yeah. I think parts of it are now um, toward the end. Parts of it are four lanes now. So they've really improved oh, it. And then back back in the nineties, it was really not what you wanted to use. But but yeah, so it, <laughs> it's like, well, good luck. The night marchers are gonna get you. Have you heard about the night marchers, John? No, is that a Hawaii thing? Oh yeah. They're Hawaiian ghosts, man. They're like ancient warrior spirits. I talk about them in my book. 
a little bit because we we hiked out to this crater the second night I was ever here. Some friends invited me to go, you know, and I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know any, I don't know, ge- geography on the Big Island. It's really, it's huge. Yeah. And I, we ended up standing on the edge of a lava lake and it was incredible. And, and the, on the hike back, they're telling me about these Hawaiian ghost night marchers. And the only thing you can do to protect yourself if these Hawaiian ghosts come is you have to take off all your clothes and go in the fetal position and then they ignore you. <laughs> As we're walking through this dark, really, <laughs> it's terrifying. But um, yeah, night. We got night. You got night marchers. Got minihune. Minihune are the small people. Those are different. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a. It's it's very very special. As you know, yeah. What was it like the first time? How old were you when you you came to? Uh, I'm. Did you visit Maui first, or did you land in Oahu first? What, what was that like? We should touch on that. Well, you know, my dad was in. Uh, Oahu during World War II. Oh, right. Um, he was in in the Navy, and he um, he kind of like everybody in the Navy that was fighting in the Pacific went through Oahu many times and stayed at the Royal Hawaiian and all, all of those uh, all those things. And he had great memories of it. I think, according to my mom, I think I was either conceived in Hawaii or Mexico. I I can't figure out which story is the real story. Mm. But my mom and dad went to Hawaii in the sixties on a cruise ship back when that was the, that was the main way to get there. In the before times. And then my uncle and aunt, uh, they built a house in Kihei in oh. 1970. Wow. Uh, they and three friends bought an acre of land uh, in Kihei, across the street from the beach, which at the time, you know, the beach was undeveloped and they built this compound of four little houses behind a lava rock wall. Lovely. And it was nice. And so we would go there, you know, throughout my whole childhood, we would go stay at, at the little Kihei house, but we also went to Honolulu mm-hmm. and this was a, Alaska and Hawaii have always had a special relationship, right? The 49th and 50th states. Yep. Yep. Met a lot of people here coming from Alaska. They like to bounce back and forth. It's interesting. And weirdly, there are a lot of people from Hawaii that go to Alaska, which seems less right, less <laughs> normal. But it, but it is what you know people do. Yeah, uh, they do do it. Yeah. So when I was a kid, plane uh, plane fare from Anchorage to Honolulu was not that. It wasn't that serious, and there I don't mm-hmm. think there were flights direct flights to the big Island or even to Maui. Mm-hmm. I think everybody flew through Oahu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, we went to Hawaii all the time. I was there every year for all that time. And then I think in high school we stopped going to Hawaii. I don't think anybody, I don't think my parents wanted to be with me uh, any more than they had to Yeah. during, uh, during high school. So I stopped going for a while, but in answer to your first question or your earlier question, mm-hmm. Anchorage has changed a lot from when I was young, mm. but but weirdly also not. Mm. Uh, a, a lot of city like Seattle, when Seattle changes, what they do is they tear stuff down mm-hmm. and build new stuff where the much cooler old stuff used to be. Mm-hmm. Seattle doesn't really need to do that, but Seattle is so concentrated geographically. Like it can't really expand. It's a, it's a really like constrained little world because it's on an isthmus. 
in Anchorage, what they did when they expanded was they just kept building stuff further and further out. Like an urban sprawl situation. Yeah. And so, and, and so the center of town driving around and just looking at Anchorage, it honestly doesn't look that different and it doesn't feel that different. That's kind of nice. It's just like they built a, uh, they built a new high school on the south end of town and they called it South. (laughs) And so now when you're up there and you talk to people, they're like, Oh, he went to South as though that is significant. (laughs) Now, when I was growing up, if you had said, Oh, he went to West. Well, that said it all about that guy. Oh, he went to West. Oh, say no more. What that mean? (laughs) Is that nice? Is that good? Well, I mean, as somebody coming from East, let me tell you, uh Oh, you, Somebody that went to West, like, you know, don't leave your wallet lying around. And it's not because West oh, is shit. like a bad, it's, it's not a dangerous place. It's mm. West was the least dangerous of all the schools. Mm. I mean, don't leave your wallet lying around because you can't trust those people at West. Oh, no. Right. So there's a big rivalry. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, I have no idea what South is. When they say like, <laughs> oh, he went to South, I'm like, is that good? Is that bad? What? What is it? <laughs> So that's what's changed about Anchorage is just there's more of it. Mm. But they haven't torn down any Mm. of the old Anchorage. That's kind of nice. What you're saying reminds me of um, something that you've talked about a few times, which is, you know, you kind of had a challenging high school and let's say 20s maybe i uh, i recall you saying that your your mom was so relieved on your 30th birthday because she it sounds like legitimately thought you might not live to your 30th birthday i was wondering if you could talk about that for a minute yeah that was most that started that that whole era was probably 18 to 26 yeah you know when i when i left home I did so, you know, I, I, I think that I, I think that in high school I wasn't actually in much jeopardy. I hadn't started doing drugs. I drank, but mm-hmm. I didn't drink like, uh, wasn't too bad yet. Everybody in Alaska drinks like crazy. You know, yeah. the fact that I drank like crazy didn't set me apart. That's something it has in common with Wisconsin. <laughs> Well, in a lot of places, right? I mean, northern places, people like to drink themselves to sleep. Mm -hmm. And this was all before the uh, European walk, right? Oh, yeah, that happened when I was 30. Okay, that was 30, okay. But that's an example of a type of thing where even after I stopped doing drugs, you know, I I walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul in a time before cell phones and, and really when email wasn't, even very commonplace. Yeah. And so, you know, if you can imagine my mother, I mean, I don't, I can't, I couldn't imagine it until I had a kid, but imagine taking your kid to the airport and your kid is like, I'm going to walk from Amsterdam to Istanbul. You'll hear from me occasionally. (sighs) You know, that, that can't possibly be very fun for your parent. And especially when I was, when I was doing drugs and drinking quite a bit and she wouldn't hear from me for weeks, Yeah, you know, all all you can do is sit and imagine the worst. Mm. And uh, now that I have a kid and I mean, just the prospect Mm -hmm. of her 
being 24 years old and in trouble for whatever reason, you know, like lost her way somewhere. I, I, it's just a terrible feeling. I can't, I can't, uh, I, I, I just can't imagine how it would make me feel. So I have a lot of sympathy for my poor mom. It must have really changed. Uh, I guess having having your own kid is that markedly changed. I don't want to say communicate. Yeah, just the understanding you have for your mom. Your mom is. A, it strikes me. She was on the show one time. It strikes me as a very strong uh, woman, and that probably helped her. That kind of inner strength helped her in those times. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a fatalism uh, that. I don't know if uh, a fatalism maybe isn't the right word, but my mom does not spend uh, any time or emotional energy wishing things were different. Right. She's entirely sort of action based. And if you want things to be different, she said, you know, she's, she will, she'll figure out ways to make things different, but she doesn't, wish the past was different and she doesn't wish things now were different. She just does what she can. Mm -hmm. And so when I was, when I was sick or when I was, uh, drunk or lost or whatever, Mm. she just did what she could, you know, she coped. And I think it was very stressful. Yeah. But I don't think it was, you know, I don't think she had any remorse. And so if, if I had, you know, if she'd gotten a message that I was dead, hmm. um, because the thing is, if she'd gotten a message that I was injured, she would have something to do. She'd get on an airplane and she'd go find me and rescue me. And, you know, like she wouldn't, right. if I was hurt or arrested or something, I think that would have been great for her. She would have had a mission Right. The, the only thing she couldn't do anything about was if I was dead and then she would have to fly to Romania and collect the body. And that's where she would, you know, she would get into that mode like, well, I have to go, I have to go do these things. But you know, that would be the, that would be the heartbreak. Mm. I'm di- I'm different, right? I mean, I'll sit and lament. And so you're pretty self-reflective. For good and ill, <laughs> but I think I think uh, that's something we have in common. Is that right? Are you pretty self-reflective? Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy your work and, and the shows. And just like sometimes stuff comes out of your mouth, or it's like I was thinking the exact same thing. So it makes me—I don't know if you do the Myers Briggs test inventory, but I wouldn't be surprised if we had the same type. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I did it once uh, or or 600 times. People are always doing it for me. Oh, I but bet. I can never remember. I can never remember. What is your job, by the way, Andrew? Oh, what is what is Andrew's job? Andrew owns his own. I don't know why I'm third-personing. Uh, I own my own business, so I am an author and a computer consultant. So I, I've written six books. I write tropical sci-fi. I actually got to call into Back to Work, the one call-in show, episode 100, and mention it was right before my first book came out back in, like, 2012. Um, so all six of my books are inspired by Hawaii. Three of them are sci-fi, tropical sci-fi with mystery elements, and three of them 
are true. Uh, they're technically a memoir, and I call it an action memoir because it could be basically be an action movie. And it's about it's the, the story of what happened when I moved from Wisconsin to Lower Puna on Big Island and all these incredible things that happened to me. So, um, so that's like getting, getting those, uh, out was one of my biggest projects for the last 10 years. And the reviews have been really good. I get email from people I don't even know. And I was selling them around the Island, uh, before, uh, I don't want to get bogged down with pandemic talk, but, uh, it's, uh, definitely affected my income. Um, but there are various things that I do, but my main focus is, uh, I'm an independent author. Yeah. It's really rewarding. So you were selling them. How were you going about selling them? I was selling them in bookstores here and uh, back when we had bookstores. And um, I was selling them in markets in person. Uh, a lot of to tourists, but also locals. And let me tell you, um, and, and I do hope <laughs> I, I do hope that um, you get to release a book someday because I would love reading your book. It's such an amazing feeling, though, John, to be able to sign and the Hawaii one's called 10,000 Hours in Paradise. It's great, amazing, especially that one, to sign that book for people whose adventure here is just starting. It's like coming full circle because you put years into these things. And to be able to like hand it to somebody and they give you cash American money is like, wow, I'm making an impact. And then you go on Amazon and that person leaves a review on Amazon and... <sighs> It was a pretty good gig until are you, yeah, are, until the virus. Have you been uh, have you been embraced by um, by the great the great state of Hawaii as a as a as a local author? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The local author uh, local authors here are wonderful. It's funny because most of the ones that I've met are all mystery writers. There's a lot of crime and mystery writers here. I feel like I'm the hmm. only. Which is great, you know. Nothing like uh, hiding a body in a in a, in a volcanic uh, hole called a puka, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And you know, occasionally there are uh, missing missing people here. People get really freaked out. Um, it's it's pretty rare, but yeah, no. The and, and and they're almost universally ladies, and they're basically all my aunties. They're super sweet. <laughs> I'm actually really lucky in that respect. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, um, I, I love what I do and then I do some design work on the side, uh, as well. But most of my, most of my income was, uh, 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 uh the book sales, which is incredible. I felt, I feel super, super, super lucky. That's phenomenal. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's one of these things. I mean, it's, it kind of, it, I imagine it must feel similar to how, like you didn't think that you'd be podcasting full time 10 years ago. Well, they didn't really exist 10 years ago, but like, maybe you could talk about that for, for a hot minute of like, you sort of leaned into podcasting. It wasn't like you intended to do it in the onset, but then I think it started with you as a guest host on back to work. Am I remembering that right? Like a thousand yeah, years ago? Yeah, I'm not, not sure. I mean, I, I think in the very early days, I didn't know what a, I mean, obviously I didn't know what a podcast was, but I was coming from a time when I did all kinds of, of um, media, right? I would do interviews uh, a lot through the, through the rock years. Be King Neptune. So... <laughs> Well, that was many years later, 10 years later. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but I, uh, I was used to, I was used to doing interviews. And so 
whatever that when when Merlin said, "Will you cover for me with Dan?" I was like, "Yeah, sure. I talk to talk to somebody on the phone. That's not hard." <laughs> and I think it was I'd been doing it with Merlin for a while, and he'd been publishing them as podcasts before I was fully aware of what a, what of what I was doing, what we were doing. Oh, that's right. Had you been doing Roderick before you were on? Because you were also on the Merlin show, which was a kind of short-lived but good video show that he did. That might have been your first. I think all that stuff at first, I just thought I was helping Merlin. Um, You know, he had that show and he was like, be on my show. And it was like, sure. Like, I, I don't mean helping Merlin like that Merlin needed my help. I just mean that when he asked me to do something, I said yes, because hey. he had given me so much help. Yeah. He was sitting down there, uh, uh, you know, building your website a thousand years ago. It's a good story. Yeah. So whatever, or just, you know, we were friends. So when he said, hey, why don't I record our calls and put them out? I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever you want. It wasn't until we were a couple of dozen episodes in that I realized <laughs> that it was a show, you know, that we were doing a show and, um, and that that was, uh, that was something that was, that was also fun for me or that also was a thing that, uh, that, that, that I had some ownership of right, at, right. to, to whatever, to whatever small degree I do, but, but no, I could never, I mean, uh, Andrew, I never had a plan of any kind <laughs> how I was going to make a living. Yeah. And only now barely do. Wow. I mean, I'm only now conscious that I need to make a living. That's amazing to me, John. Like, so, so I, okay. It's, it's hard to, to know the self fully. Right. But what do you feel? What do you, there's that 80, 20 rule, right? Which is tends to be true. 20% of your effort ends up being, 80% of your results, right? Turn, converting to 80% of your results. What do you feel like you did right to have a, a business, you know, do, do this, you know, I don't know exactly, you're probably being like 1099 or something, that is, that is uh, you know, completely remote. You can just do that. You can do your four shows on Maui if you decide to go to Maui for a month. Like what... Was it just, it can't just be dumb luck. Like you, there was some, there was something that you did right. One would think. Uh, how? Do you think it's building off of the fact that you had a pretty great band and have it really, I'm still holding out for the next Long Winters album. Um, do you think it's building from that or what, what do you think kind of led to, what, what, what like habits or mindset do you think has helped you, I suppose? I think I think the, the the advantage of not having a plan is is to circle back to Aloha mm. or to circle back to Yin mm-hmm. when a fork comes in the road. Mm. I didn't have a plan, so I didn't really force the issue one way or the other. Mm. And a lot of the decisions that I've made since the since I was twenty one. Uh, were made because I came to some sometimes really small fork in the road hmm. and just, I mean, it's not a case of going in the path of least resistance. It's the case of kind of following your, your attraction and your aptitude much more, um, 
much more freely just because you're not, uh, uh, my decisions weren't, weren't pre-made based on my assumption about what my future was going to be. Hmm. So for instance, there were, uh, I came up with a handful of bands that were fronted by songwriters that were, that were amazingly talented and differently talented than me. Some of them hmm. way better singers than me. Some of them, you know, really crafty songwriters, some of them just really good musicians. But a lot of times they, they had a vision of what they wanted, what they thought success for their band was going to be. And it, right. it invariably involved signing a major label deal, mm-hmm. getting tour support money from the label that would enable them to have a, a bus or a van mm. and then they could quit their job and then they could, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then they could make the record. And that wasn't your goal. And because they, well, they had this, the thing is that all of those were preconditions yeah. and I didn't have a, I, 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 I didn't have a goal. And, and, and so when hmm. somebody came along and said, well, uh, you know, this tour, we can only pay you a hundred dollars a night mm. and you know, it's going to cost you $150 a day to keep the band on tour. Mm. You know, I borrowed a car. I put the guys in the truck. We all slept in the van or we slept on people's floors. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't have an expectation that I was ever going to have a deal where people were paying for me. Like, you know, the, I was never going to have a major label deal. I never thought, I hoped, but I never thought I would, you know, I never expected to. Hmm. And that was true all the way along the line. Like there, I'm sure there were a lot of people that in 2011, somebody said, Hey, you know, let's start a podcast. And their first thought was, well, what does it pay? <laughs> or, you know, like I I can't do it because I don't have the time or whatever. And I mean, Merlin and I did that show for three years without ever making a penny from it. Yep. And so to, to do that required that I not have a plan. Cause mm. if I'd had a plan, if you came to me now and said, start a podcast with me, I would say, yeah, I, I can't afford to, unless it is something that I can see is going to earn me some money. Cause my time is valuable. Yeah. And you already have four shows and a daughter. But I was I was 40 years old when Merlin asked me to do that show. And apparently at that time, I didn't think my time was too valuable <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and partly that is that I was that I considered my friendship with Merlin to be important. Definitely. And partly it was that it just sounded fun. But partly it was that I couldn't possibly have had a strategy. Yeah, you couldn't predict you couldn't have, right? If you, yeah. if your strategy was, I want to have a successful podcast that becomes my career, you just, I, I would have done a thousand different things than what, than what I did. So mm. Mm. it's, if I had been Yang about it, I wouldn't be here today. Oh man, I got to rename this damn show. It's going to be the Yang, the Yin show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, but so it's a totally different mindset. I mean, so, so, I mean, but the touring takes a lot of energy. Well, everything does. I mean, even, even talking to somebody once a, once a week takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Because you're, it's, you know, it's, it's the thing I think that a lot of people don't understand about performance is that Mm -hmm. you, um, they get your mind right. Yeah. You've been a little bit. Well, and you've been rehearsing your whole life, right? Mm -hmm. You've been, 
you've been training your whole life to be able to sit and talk to somebody comfortably and not get, not get anxiety, not get social anxiety, not, not uh, ever get tongue tied or feel dumbfounded. Are you prone to social anxiety? Uh, not anxiety, but, but I, because I've trained myself out of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, my, when you're young, I mean, there were plenty of times when I sat in a chair just covered in flop sweat uh, because I didn't know what to say and I didn't know wh- how to be there. Right, right. I was thinking back to a radio show. I got asked to be on some kind of panel show years ago. With uh, the, It was a show hosted by John Moe, who went on to work in Minnesota Public Radio. Hmm. And the other panelist... Um, was Luke Burbank who started the show too beautiful to live. Hmm. And it was like, a, it was like, let's talk about the news of the day here on public radio in Seattle. And they, they threw a question to me and I didn't know how to answer. Hmm. And this is live radio. Oh, I boy. sat there just like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh. what had happened was, and Luke Burbank was sitting next to me, you know, putting his hand on my shoulder, like, it's cool. It's cool. You know, you've got this. And I was like, I came up and then they realized like they needed to, they needed to cut to commercial or go, you know, and I was so embarrassed. I was so, but it was the first time I'd ever been on radio, you know, so yeah. many years ago. You were literally in the hot seat. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't immune to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because because those are alien. It's alien to sit at a microphone with a head, set of headphones on and and try and be fun and funny. You think so? And so all of, don't you think? Don't you think it's a little? Uh, don't you think it's a little strange? Okay, so but okay, okay, okay. But you, so you didn't grow up like recording yourself on cassette tapes because I did, and I thought it was endlessly entertaining. <laughs> you go you go to your friend's house with a cassette tape. I mean, it's a little bit different than having like a big microphone in front of you and headphones, but I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously wired uh weirdly, but I mean, it's maybe doing it a lot. I I don't like to hear the sound of my own voice at all. Really? Um No, no, I don't oh. I don't. What about I, your I don't songs? like to listen to my stuff. No, I don't like to. I oh I, I mean, I listen to my songs 8,000 times when I'm recording them and right. then I don't want to ever listen to my own album. Yeah. Um, I get that. I get that. So I don't, I don't like, um, we have a good voice I think that, for what it's worth. Well, that's nice. Thank no, you. I think it's true. I was talking to, I think Dan about it the other day and the, the process of having your written voice, your speaking voice, your inner voice mm. and your storytelling voice all be the same voice. Oh, right. Has been a a long process for me. Hmm. There are a lot of people that when they start to tell a story, you see them switch modes and they no longer are themselves. They switch over into some sort of like, now I'm telling a story. (laughs) And there are people who's, I mean, you can just tell that they're, that the voice they use in the world is not the same as their inner voice. Hmm. Their invisible self. For me, like bringing all those, yeah, to to bring all those together so that they're not separate. What it did was it, it relieved me, you know, the way they say like the hardest part of telling, uh, of being a liar is that you have to remember all your lies. Yeah. 
if your inner voice and your outer voice aren't the same voice, you basically have to remember your lies all the time. Huh. Because your your inner voice is yourself, and then if your outer voice is different, then it's a lie. You're lying all the time. You're lying. Even if it's just in tone. Yeah, just in tone. Yeah, I can see so, that. I mean, it's subtle, so but that, yeah. That's, that's why you get people that are just, they're always uncomfortable because they're just like hoping that nobody finds out that this isn't their real voice. Oh, and then you got imposter syndrome and all the things. So for me, like linking all those things up was just a process of realizing that my inner voice was fine and I could just use that. I could use that as my outer voice. Hmm. I could use it as my writing voice. Hmm. I could use it as my singing voice Hmm. even. (laughs) I was listening to Ultimatum this morning. I just said, uh, Siri. Oh, I shouldn't say that on the show. Um, yeah, be careful. Shuffle. Hey, 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 Dingus. Shuffle Long Winters. And Ultimatum came up, and I was like, oh, I haven't heard this in, in a few months. Love that song. It, it, you feel like it's a, a, a journey of self-acceptance. Would you characterize it like that? Of just yes. being yeah, deeply okay with, I. this is John. John is lovable. And No, uh, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, okay. All right. I would say self-acceptance in the ter- in terms of like this is who I am and this is what you get, and this is okay. Uh, I don't even know if I'd go that far, but this is who I am and this is what you get oh, is I'm giving you a hug buddy. is as much self-acceptance. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a the I mean the woo aspect of our contemporary society goes that extra step of like, and it's okay and you're okay. And you're good and you're lovable and you deserve a hug. And it's like, I don't believe really any of that, but I do believe that yeah. you, that to get to a point where you're like, this is who I am and this is... Take it or leave it. Like, I was dating a girl at one point years and years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, she was an outlier for me, not somebody I normally would have dated. It was a weird transitional moment in my life. Mm-hmm. She was a girl that had you know, that had a lot of cool kid tattoos and she had a lot of, she was, she was very cool. She was very, uh, she, she was, yeah, she was brash and she was, uh, she sounds cool in a way. She was much more flamboyantly alternative culture than I was. Mm-hmm. And she was very fit hmm. and her, uh, she came from a culture of people where being very fit was part of their culture. Hmm. And early on, we were, um, you know, we were undressed with one another. And it was, you know, maybe the second or third time it had happened. Yeah. And we were in a hotel. It was the middle of the day. And so, you know, it wasn't like under the covers or in the dark. I was just kind of there in my in my natural uh, garment. Mm-hmm. And you're all together. And, you know, and I and there was a look on her face. Mm-hmm. And she was all this is the, she was a very unedited person. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Is there, you know, like what is this look that's crossing your face? What can I? How am I meant to interpret it?" And she said, just you know, again, very unedited. She was like, "I don't know. I'm just used to being with guys who are really fit, and you're like, not really mm. fit." And it was a moment that, you know, it was a very vulnerable place for me already because not being fit is a place that I, you know, I've, I've always reprimanded myself for it. Yeah. And 
I had, you know, in a kind of flash of, of a kind of confidence and it was a confidence born of necessity, right? Because a comment like that would devastate me and in a state of, of de- being devastated, like I'm done, right? I'm cooked. Yeah. Devastate and a lot of people. If, if she and I are going to continue a relationship under those conditions, then like I'm under her thumb from then on. Right. Yeah, I mean, all she yeah. has to do is look at me out of the side of her eye and I'm devastated. And I'm, I don't want to crawl around. I don't want to, I'm not on yeah. anybody's leash. Hell no. And so I said, well, look, here's the deal. This is me. Yep. Like uh, there's not some, um, there's not some platonic ideal of me that you're dating mm-hmm. and that this one in front of you is like, like one that needs to like achieve the platonic ideal of itself. Like this is it. And so it's really your choice. Like, is this what you want? Am I the one you want to date or do you want to date someone else? Mm-hmm. And if you want to date me, then I, I am this. And so that's all 100% on you, whether or not you can handle it or not. And watching the, watching the look on her face change as she, as she just about faced it and was like, no, 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 it's you. I want to date you. And I was like, well, then this is it. Can you hang? And she was like, totally, totally, totally. I can hang. Mm. That's not what I was saying. I just, and I was like, all right, well then we're, then that conversation is in our past because I'm not, you know, there's no, there's no fit me that's mm-hmm. going to come around the corner. Mm-hmm. And that little bit of, and I don't know whether it was like, it's just, it's the confidence that comes when the chips are down, you know, when somebody's got a gun pointed at you, really. I feel like you'd be good in that situation. But, but walking away from it, I did not feel like this is me and I deserve a hug or this is me and I'm worthy of your love or any, there was nothing sweet about it. It was, look, I recognize I'm fucked up, but I am it. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to walk around being sorry. Yeah. I don't, I don't deserve anything, but I'm sure as shit not going to be sorry. Well, you established really clear clarity and clear boundaries in that interaction. That was like the yeah, exact. I don't know if there were any boundaries in our relationship. <laughs> well, I mean, she could have been like, uh, you know, that could have been a gateway for her to be like, well, it'd be great if you changed and you put a bit of a, I don't know, that felt like a, some, a kind of boundary for you going, hey, you, this is me, leave me or, or take me. Is it maybe a kind I mean, of boundary? Yeah. The boundary is always, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day with, as far as love goes and romance, Mm. I, it is always easier for me to be alone. Wow. So the the threat of being unloved or the threat of that someone can levy where they're like, well, if you don't change, then I might withhold my love. Like I'm two steps ahead of you there. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm fine being alone, right? So I'm not going to put up with any of that kind of shit. And that gives you power. I mean, over your own life, yeah. Yeah, it's free, a kind of freedom. Yeah. And I, there have been plenty of times in my life where someone, where, where a desire to be loved by someone was stronger than my desire to be alone. Yeah. And those have been nightmares. I've, <sighs> hate, I've hated those times in my life. Yeah. And it's not like being alone is 
you know, is like, uh, uh, it doesn't satisfy my desire to be loved. Yeah. But I would rather be alone than be, than be either despised or, or on a leash. Right. And I guess that, I guess that's, that is, that's liberty, but it's nothing to do with feeling like I deserve better. Oh, that, that's the thing. When I hear people say like, you deserve better. It's Mm. like, no, you don't. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't. You don't deserve better. You get what you get and don't be upset. Give it, get, and don't be upset. And if you don't like it, then (laughs) change it. But don't, you know, like the, the, the culture that says like, that, that, that we deserve anything is the one that I can't, I, well, at least I don't have any part of me that feels like I deserve right. better, except I do feel like I deserve more faves on my tweets. Yeah. I, I favor tweets sometimes. You fav, you're great at faving my tweets. Thank you. Oh, you, did, you, did you see that? Do you see that? You're welcome. You've good tweets. And then you had that one lately. Oh my God. Mark well, that's what I'm talking about. Oh my god! You got the one tweet, and now it's the biggest tweet I ever had, and it oh makes me god. super mad. But why does it make you mad? You feel like the other thing got more popular. Uh, it makes me mad because it's my daughter's tweet. My daughter tweeted, yeah. you know, said said something, and she got two hundred and twenty thousand likes. And that, you know, I work my ass off over there on Twitter, and I don't get shit. But yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's the social media; you can't predict anything. I'm I'm thinking about I don't, this is just totally random kind of there's a line I was had stuck in my head when I got up this morning but I don't know and it was crave translates into slave mm. which is one of the lines from your song um wh- the conversation reminds me of this too of like if you're craving that person's acceptance if you're willing to change for someone else you're already losing I think in, in in degrees, right? You weren't going to suddenly start going to the gym, so so she would be totally happy because then it's. A, do you feel like it's a slippery slope? And also, is is there kind of like a Buddhist inspiration to that line, or was it just like life experience? Well, it's a. You're absolutely right that that's what I meant by it. But where it starts is is in in drug addiction or food addiction or sex addiction. Right. Like as soon as you as soon as you go cross the line to crave, then you're totally a slave, whether it's heroin or whether it's whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And approval is a big one. Mm-hmm. And then, so using that, because in a lot of my songs, it starts with, uh, with addiction. Mm. And then that becomes a metaphor for love. Mm. Uh, because I think I had, you know, I was developing addictions and love at the same time. And neither one of them was, I didn't really develop a, a healthy relationship to either thing. I wasn't like, I wasn't particularly well grounded in love or drugs hmm. when, I, when I met those two things in the wild. You feel like you equated them in some way? Well, they were the only, they were the only two directions it seemed like a person could go. I mean, I, I, I've always sought out like toward happiness. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, or toward, uh, I guess I see toward like experience that you could really feel. Yeah. Like for me, I was never somebody that 
that somebody gave them an assignment. I completed the assignment and handed it in. And the grade that I received was sufficient. The Mm. grade was never sufficient. Like, Oh, I got an a big fucking deal. Like I, that's it. This, that was our exchange. You gave me this assignment. I didn't care about. I completed it to your satisfaction and you gave me a letter. Why are we doing this? Why, what is this all like? Why am I participating in this? Even an a didn't satisfy you. No, because what's the difference? I mean, an A, a B, a C, all it is is like is is like a, a quick round of applause that immediately goes away. There's no Yeah. It's all of that is what have you done for me lately, culture, right? There there's no <laughs> God, I wish I had a bell sometimes. I gotta get a bell. And there's no thrill, right? There's no you don't feel it there's no passion. And yeah. getting drunk and high and falling in love both felt dangerous and passionate, unpredictable, mm-hmm. scary, but potentially gateways to experiences that I couldn't have, uh, that I that I didn't have to think up myself, right? If you fall in love with somebody, you don't have to think up the thing that's going to push you to the edge. It's it's there. It's getting made up for you. It's already edgy. By your... Yeah, your the animal in you is making it up, and the same is true with with drugs and alcohol. You don't have to make up a problem. You don't have to make up an adventure. Like one will happen, yeah. and <laughs> so the, so yeah, I do equate them, and they do, and they felt, and they felt, and still feel equally perilous. Um, it's just now that I don't do drugs and alcohol, it's love that imperils me more. <laughs> And that's not what that's not what I set out. To, I can to relate do. to that. And I'm I've been I'm curious how long you've been sober. You don't have to tell me, but twenty five years. Woo! I have a couple yeah. alcoholics in my family, and uh, it's it's dealing with that personally is has really given me a lot of empathy for that as a condition. And uh, someone really close to me is alcoholic, and I, it's like every day I, I think, you know, just if you can just stay on the wagon, don't fall off the wagon, because they just lose. Some people can drink and some people can't. They just can't. It's just a slippery slope. And it almost feels like, you know, I, maybe that's the nature of craving is it? it's always a slippery slope. If you don't have the perspective on your limitations then you give all your power away. I mean, were you, uh, one thing I want to touch on before you go is like, were you, is there like a, is there a, you know, is there like a spiritual tradition you were raised in or anything like that? Was there like, I mean, because it seems like, and maybe it's because I'm a non-sitting, non-practicing Buddhist, kind of. There's definitely a lot in Buddhism that I relate to. Um, Do you identify with anything now? I'm always curious to see how people's, you know, spiritual and esoteric views impact their art, especially for artists, because it's a big impact, I think. Uh, you know, my, both of my parents were, uh, were free thinkers that had, that had been raised in a, in a tradition. My mom was a Methodist and my dad was effectively, I think his, my dad's father was a Presbyterian minister, but I think by the time of my dad's, by the time my dad got to be uh, a, an adult. I think he would have been part of an Episcopal um, culture at okay. least. Uh, so they both were, but they were raised 
you know, in the early part of the 20th century. So, Mm -hmm. or the first half of it, at least. So religion just played a much larger cultural role in the like definitely middle class. Right. Mm -hmm. But by the time I came around, neither one of them was, um, religious so much as they were that first generation of people that had transitioned to spiritual rather than religious. So they got to kind of call their own shots. Right. 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 My dad, my dad had a lot of different religion. My mom had a lot of different religion. They just kind of put it all together and (laughs) took what they liked and, and, um, and it worked for them and it works for my sister that same way. She is variously Buddhist and, and practices, you know, a whole, uh, a whole goulash of religious religions. Yeah. Goulashism. But I'm not, I don't, I don't have, um, I don't have things that I think are sacred. I don't have sacrament. I (laughs) don't have ritual in my life really, especially I don't do the same thing every day or every Sunday. I don't take comfort in things being constant. Mm -hmm. I don't look outside for something to be my pole star. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, all of my reflection is bounced off of what I perceive to be the known universe and the, and the laws that I have managed to discern and, other people and what they appear to be constituents of, Hmm. you know, I mean, it's like systems. I'm looking at systems and like, am I in this system? Am I not? Are we all, is there a way to ever be out of it? Hmm. And all of that is just part of like, it's just fascinating. It's a, it's a, it's a thing to let your imagination roam Mm -hmm. toward. Mm -hmm. I think your self-reflection is evident in the shows. You know, he... Yeah, but it's but it's not related to is there a is there a space wisdom? <laughs> John, what happens right? when we die? Yeah, yeah, it's like that's the thing. Is there a space wisdom? I mean, is there space? Is is there? Yeah, space math. <laughs> like there is, there's space math for Show sure. Title. Show title. <laughs> yeah, but is there is there space wisdom? Do you do you have it? I you don't. Have a, yeah. No. Do you have a sense of it, though? I mean, like, because you've had a lot of interesting experiences. You know, I'm sure you've done mushrooms and, 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 and been far out. And, you know, have you gotten any wisdom from, not wisdom, have you gotten any, like, what you feel is um, beyond information from, from that? Oh, I, cha- I, I chase God all the time, all the time. Yeah. Um, but we are so, we're such malleable little monkeys. Who, I, how can you say like my perception, your perception, yeah. there's such, there's such flawed little, uh, little hmm. like scripts that are running. <laughs> Who cares? Right. Who cares what my little mind says? And, and it's, it's back to what Mike Squire said, like feelings are real. Feelings it's are like, real. okay, feelings are real. Yeah. And so feelings are real. I mean, that's as, that's, I guess, as far as it goes. I mean, I got sober because I stood out in the, in the forest and said, God, please relieve me of my suffering. And God did. Whoa. Uh, but what is that? I mean, what that is, is feelings are real yeah. more than it is that, you know, that I'm, that I am going to like tithe to 
the first church that I walked into after that happened. Well, yeah, there's, there's, well, it's like you're saying, there's spiritualists, there's spiritual sides and there's religious sides. Those are different, you know, like, is there a great spirit? I think so. I think so. Is religion really complicated and maybe been distorted from what's really going on? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't really think there's a great spirit. I do think that there's a uh, there, there's a there, there's such a vastness that we could never know. Yeah, there's a force that, that it's it's like it's well, force is just mitochlorians. Yeah, yeah, you get whatever. Right. Yeah, like the the story the story keeps changing, right? <laughs> Even of the force. I don't watch that movie. Episode one is verboten. So anyway, math, I guess, like space math. Space I math. wish I understood it better. <laughs> so do you have like a, I guess my, my, my closing thing would be, um, and this is all kind of, I mean, it sounds like I was going to ask you what your biggest lesson you've learned during your career has been, but I think you've kind of pretty much danced all around it, which is, you know, that self-acceptance is a great place to start. I don't know if that's the biggest one, but that seems like a, a big theme. Yeah, self-acceptance to the exclusion of feeling like that means you deserve anything. And and that's the hardest part for me is not that I, I, I've never felt like I deserve anything because I'm inherently virtuous or because I'm good. I do have, uh, I do have the expectation that just comes from things always having been a certain way that I think you could sometimes describe as entitlement. Uh, but more often is just a case of if you grow up and your water is always clean, you don't even know to think that, uh, that stipulating that your water be clean is a thing you have to do. Mm, it's an assumption. And the day that you first get a glass, yeah, you get a glass of dirty water. It's not, it's not a flaw in you that, you're surprised by it. Mm. It's just, you just never, you know, you, every morning you woke up and no one ever chopped off your finger. So the first time someone <laughs> chops off your finger, of course you're surprised. <laughs> and it's not, it's not that you aren't, you know, that's not a, that's not a moral failing in, on your part. And so there is a lot of that in my life just because I was raised where I was and how I was and by who I was yep. that I do expect when I walk into a room that I'm going to be greeted. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't really even that I feel like there's anything special about me. It's just that I'm used to, I'm used to being greeted when I walk into a room right. and, and learning to uh, learning that that is a, um, that that isn't true for everyone has been a, a learning experience for me, but, hmm. but it wasn't that I had to learn it wasn't that I thought I was entitled to anything. It's just, it's the, it's the habits. It's the, yeah, it's the subtler form of entitlement, which is just like, well, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean? There's no, uh, there's no seconds. Like there's always seconds. What do you mean? <laughs> there's no seconds. Like, yeah, sorry. There's no seconds. You're in a restaurant kid. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, you, the first rule is make it all. Something I learned from you. You get a bag, you make That's it right. all. Make all the spaghetti. Is there anything you'd like to point people toward? 
before we let you go? No, I think you've done a wonderful job of explaining who I am to everybody. So thanks for Aww. having me on your show, sir. Oh, of course. I really appreciate it, John. And and, uh, yeah. and I'd love to talk for like two minutes in an after show if you have two minutes. But um, everybody should go to thelongwinters.com and follow John Roderick on Twitter. And he's John Roderick on Instagram. And his Instagram is a delightful uh, smorgasbord, I'll call it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's good. Re- it's very fun. It's very, very fun. <laughs> thanks, John. And Okay, mahalo, thanks again. Mahalo. Mahalo. You know, interviews like that are one of the reasons why I love podcasting. Seriously. Now, before I leave you, I want to say a big thank you, first of all, to John for sharing some of his afternoon with me. It was, uh, it was a real honor. Uh, also, if you've enjoyed this interview, there are a lot more and iTunes is the easiest way to find them. Uh, all you have to do is search for Aravinda show. That's A-R-A-V-I-N-D-A-S-H-O-W. And if you're on Instagram or Twitter, uh, I'm at hello Crusoe on there and that's hello C-R-U-S-O-E. And I post samples of interviews when they come out. So it's the best way to see when they're coming out. Also, you should just subscribe on iTunes anyway. And be sure to check out John Roderick on Instagram as well. He's hilarious on there. And he you should check out his new Western State Hurricane record. Um, it's been remastered. It sounds amazing. It's streaming on Bandcamp for free. I'll put all those links, of course, in the show notes for this episode over at Mythly, my website. That's M-Y-T-H dot L-I as in leopard unicorn. That's... Uh, easy to find actually and click Arvinda show in the menus you'll be able to find the show notes for this episode and all the great shows as well as samples of my books including 10,000 hours in paradise that we talked about in this interview it's a story of what happened when I moved from Wisconsin to lower Puna on the big island of Hawaii talk about culture shock and it's a story so true that I had to give everyone pseudonyms (laughs) it's so full of magic that you won't be able to put it down And you can get about the first 20% for free by going to Mythly, my website, and click on Get Three Free Books, and it's in the menus. It's easy to find. And uh, also, and this is very important, if you enjoyed this interview and you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes. I know you hear this in the other shows you listen to, but it's so true, man. (laughs) Or woman. (laughs) It, uh, It helps iTunes rank the show higher. It helps the iTunes get the tunes to more eyes, if you know what I mean. And even one sentence review just helps more than I can say. I'm in a goofy mood, but I'm leaving it in. What's in the show is in the show. I'm Andrew Crusoe. Thank you so much for listening. (sighs) Aloha. Aloha.